Welcome to Anecdotes for Success with Matt and Paul. Storytelling is an art form, emphasizing the value and learning that is created through personal experience. Our purpose is to share these stories and experiences with the listener. Everyone has a powerful testimony. Let's use them to level up to our best life with truth, meaning, trade-offs, and perspective. Big shout out to Isaac Mather for the new podcast intro. You can check Isaac's music out on all socials or directly at IsaacMatherMusic.com. All right, we have Hannah Frankman back on, aka Rebel Educator. I'm allowed to say that, right? Yes. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I was just looking. So before you came on, Hannah, I was going to try to look and see what episode you were because you were the early days of our podcast. But I'm like Dory the Fish and <laughs> Matt's crazy and we lost our train of thought. And then next thing you know, you're on the podcast. So <laughs> I don't know what episode you were, but it was the early days. And I, I, I DM'd you on Twitter the other day because, man, you you were growing. You were making a difference. You you were killing it in the world of education. And, and I want to say it is a disruptor. Right. If anything. And 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 all, all caps when I say disruptor. And and so viewers can go back to the earlier episode and we don't have to rehash all that. But if you want to just start and give a little background, maybe of what you do, and then we'll just get going and ask some questions. But I mean, the floor is yours. Sure. Yeah. I'll give the bullet points Cliff's note version. I'll try to, <laughs> sometimes I get a little lost in the weeds. I get really excited about a piece of this story <laughs> along the way and it ends up being, right, right. we'll try to keep this succinct. Um, I grew up homeschooled first grade through 12th, uh, skipped college to work for a startup apprenticeship program called Praxis that was helping young people land jobs in the business world instead of getting a business degree. That's where I got started working in the alternative education space, where I've been working pretty much exclusively ever since. Um, I've had my hands in a couple different programs and projects since Praxis before starting Rebel Educator, which is what I do now. Uh, I launched Rebel Educator a little under a year and a half ago. Uh, and we're building a platform that is intended to be the first stop resource for parents who are looking for alternatives to public school. Uh, so basically, I hang out on Twitter all day and I tell parents why they should pull their kids out of public school immediately and do something else with them. Uh, so I'm a big fan of what you're doing, Paul, and other education innovators like you. Uh, I have a couple other entrepreneurial projects on the side. I do marketing agency type stuff for other people who are building brands. Uh, I have a podcast of my own now, which is fairly new. I launched that in July. It's called the Hannah Frankman podcast, very creative name, uh, <laughs> where I have lots of conversations about education so people can find more there. Uh, but basically I am a staunch advocate for the kids. I am a staunch advocate for the individual always across all arenas of life and for the freedom to pursue what people want to pursue to live a fulfilled life, which is why I keep coming back to education because that's the foundation of everything. So that's what I do. Uh, if people want more backstory. We can get into whatever pieces of this live here right. too, but I tell my story on the podcast. I tell my story on Twitter. If people want to dig into the details, I think we talked about that a lot the last time I was here too. Uh, I kind of kept that short. That's the Cliff Snows version of what I do and who I am. That's pretty impressive. Uh, and, and again, I've I've listened to a couple episodes of your podcast. There's just not enough hours in the day. You know, I, I want to go back, but 
Very, very good stuff. We'll put the the Spotify link to the podcast in the in the bio of this when we're done. And Matt, awesome. I, I Matt, I filibustered the whole time and blocked you, and you haven't <laughs> asked a question yet. And I know, I know you're chomping at the bit, so go ahead. No, no. First of all, Hannah, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming yeah. back. I, I, I have referenced the podcast we had with you, whatever one it was, so many times, whether it's just on our podcast here or just in conversations in my life, because it just had it was it was an interesting conversation. It had a real impact on just my thought process, you know, and and uh, I'm soon to be a, a father a, a second time. So uh-huh. I have a little a little daughter on the way in about six weeks. Um, Congratulations. And, yeah, That's so exciting. Thank, yeah. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm thrilled. My wife's thrilled. But, you know, one of the things we talk about all the time is what does school look like? You know, because when in 1980 or whenever, because I was born in 75 when when I went to school, I mean, I, I don't know if these conversations were being had, but I don't think they were, certainly not to, to this type of degree. And, and when, you know, I have an older daughter who's 24, and, and, and when she went to school, it was probably lack of uh, awareness on my part and also a different time to some degree. And so these never had to think about these things. And when we talked before, you just made a, you made a big impression on me. So, you know, when Paul said you were coming back, I was really happy to hear that because for a variety of reasons but a couple things that come to mind i wanted to ask you um well first of all i'll make a statement when you said you're all things individual and what you want to do you're just like i'm like i love that i'm the same way it's like i i i i just had to say that like wonderful to have that mindset i i think it's uh so important but the question i wanted to ask is you're obviously passionate about this topic. And you may have answered what the question I'm going to a little bit, what you just said. But my question that I wrote down as you were talking was, where does this passion come from? Because what you're doing, Hannah, isn't something that like you've got to have, you've got to get up with and, and want to go on this stuff. You're not punching a clock and getting paid. You know, you're not, you're not just going through the motions. That's so obvious. Just talking to you. like, where does this come from? There's like a fire in there somewhere I, that I see. And I'm, I'm curious wh- where it started. That's a good question. There are a lot of funny answers to that, but I'll, I'll, I'll stay serious here, uh, and answer you sincerely. Um, so the simple version is that I feel like I won the lottery educationally. Like I got stupidly lucky to have grown up homeschooled by parents who were very knowledgeable about what was going on in terms of education options and and how to raise a child. And they were both very well read, but also very forthcoming about what they didn't know. And they were very willing to experiment and figure it out when they ran into things that they didn't know, which was, you know, a lot of the time my parents weren't educational experts by any means. They didn't have a background in education or being teachers or anything like that. Uh, My mom had worked in public schools a little bit as a sign language interpreter, which is very much not the same thing as being a teacher. Uh, But that was about the extent of it. And so they weren't, you know, it's not like they'd been trained for this, but they just were willing to pick up the mantle and say, we, you know, have a vision of how we want to educate our kids and how we want our kids to turn out. And we're willing to put in the work to figure out how to get there. 
and I had the most amazing childhood as a result. And I don't think I fully realized how lucky I was until I was well into my twenties, because for me, it was just normal to be at home all day and to only have to spend a couple hours a day on schoolwork and to be able to spend the rest of the day building forts in the woods and castles out of cardboard boxes and tying things like chairs together with yarn to construct some strange mechanical contraption I could see in my head that my poor mother had to untangle later. Like, you know, it was just, it was great. And I realized as an adult interfacing with the real world that a lot of how I was perceiving the world and interacting with the world was really different from a lot of the my peers. And it was because of my education. And so I think there are a lot of really significant benefits that I got from the childhood that I had, everything from, you know, being very unafraid of walking my own path and being entrepreneurial, like the type of work that I'm doing now, I, I'm pretty sure I feel bold enough to do this because I just kind of grew up this way. Like it's just sort of, you have an idea and so you go build something. It's just what you, what, what you did. I never learned any other way, but the fact that I'm have this entrepreneurial bent, the fact that I love learning, the fact that I never learned to resent a lot of the types of things that school sort of beats the passion out of children around, like I get up in the morning and I start writing on Twitter. Most kids hate writing because school taught them that it was an abhorrent activity to be avoided at all costs. Uh, I never had to incur that battle wound from being in school. And so like, I don't have any PTSD around things that are writing related. Um, I am very comfortable not just following the status quo and doing my own thing. Um, but even culturally, like I wasn't, raised steeped in pop culture the way that a lot of kids are because I was home with my parents doing the things that I innately found interesting not in a school full of my peers trying to keep up with the social pressures and paying attention to whatever the crowd at large found interesting in order to maintain some sense some sense of social belonging and all of those things combined that and that's that's just the tip of the iceberg of you know benefits that I can trace back to having been homeschooled but I just got really lucky and I found it more and more sobering as I got older, just how lucky I had been. And I feel like, you know, if I can pay that forward in some way, uh, it's almost like a way of saying thank you for having been so incredibly lucky to have had this upbringing. Um, you know, like every parent who's thinking about alternative paths is looking for, you know, validation that their intuitions around what's possible are correct. And so hearing stories of people who've been through it and survived it and didn't come out like strangely deformed and, you know, like strangely socially awkward and someone you can like smell from a mile away is coming. It's like, oh, here comes the homeschooler. We can tell. Uh, like if you can validate people's fears about this, uh, that's really powerful. But then, you know, so, so that's kind of how it started. But then the more I thought about it, the more philosophical I got about it, and the more I interacted with the, the world, I started to realize that because I could see things from this different perspective, it was very obvious to me, all of the downstream effects of what we're doing in the public school system in the same way, you know, you pour a pollutant into a creek and then everything in the watershed, like downstream of that also, like the, the chemicals spread down in the same way when you're, 
you know, sending kids into a system that's having, you know, really specific impacts on them, it, those impacts are going to carry over into every other piece of their lives from that point forward. And a lot of the things that are happening downstream culturally and politically and socially and economically, and, you know, you, you name it, uh, you can trace it all back to school to some extent. And so I just started to realize that nothing is more important than this because if you get education wrong and you get even if you get everything else right if you get education wrong all of the rights that you've done will be undone by people who have been poorly educated in the next generation and so I just can't think of anything more important that I ought to be doing so that is why I accidentally became an education advocate I didn't really mean to it just sort of happened but I I can definitely justify it now the time I spend on it (laughs) I, I got a follow-up question, then I'll let you, I'm sure you got questions, Paul, I don't want to, but but based on on that, you 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 mentioned a lot of, the, a tremendous number of benefits to it, and um, that that are all, uh, make sense, of course, and, and legitimate, what, what, even though I know you're an advocate, but everything has kind of a, a, a you know, a, another side of the coin, oh, yeah. right? What, what would be some of the, you know, like from a, uh, you know, someone who's obviously in the know on this and, and, and um, I, you know, a professional when it comes to this topic, like what are some legitimate disadvantages that you see out there for what you're advocating for? Because I advocate for a variety of things in my life, but one of the things I try to be good at is going, but the trade-offs are that here are some of the things that we got to be careful of. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean I don't believe in what I believe in because I do, but but I also recognize some of those traps, let's say, or, or potential problems. Are there any things that jump out to you that you would list? Yeah, there's show? there's a bunch. Okay. Um, and I think they have to be delivered with a side of alternative education is very individualized. So the problems are going to be very individual. It's going they're like, none of these are a one size fits all thing, but I think there are a few common drawbacks or detriments to the approach. And okay. this doesn't just apply to homeschooling. This applies to alternative schooling across the board to varying degrees, depending on the model, which we can get into a little bit later if you guys want to go there. Um, but I think there are a few common drawbacks. Um, one is the socialization component for sure. Like it is harder to build a social network for your kids when you don't have the built-in abundance of public school. Uh, this is, you know, to be clear, it's abundance divorced from a quality metric. Just because there are a lot of kids around doesn't mean it's a good fit for your kid, but there are a lot of them for better or for worse. Um <laughs> But, you know, it's it's hard to replicate that outside of the system. It's much easier now than it used to be. It's a lot easier now than it was when I was growing up, uh, even a decade ago. Um, there are a lot more homeschoolers than there have really ever been historically since the, the inception of our public school system as we know it today. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's, it's harder to build social connections. And that has, I think this, this is a, a, a dark maybe side effect of alternative paths that I would argue still has a silver lining or like a light underbelly. Um, because I think, you know, I, I have a lot of controversial opinions about this one, actually, not everybody, people, people take issue with this stance, but I stand by it. Um, I had 
seasons of drought socially growing up. And it was hard because I'm an extroverted person and I like socializing and interacting with people. Um, But I'm not sure it was a bad thing developmentally that I had the space uh, because I'm also a fairly agreeable person. I am not as agreeable as I think I am according to the big five personality test, but I'm still relatively agreeable. And I would have probably compromised on a lot of my own values and interests in order to fit in with the crowd. But because I had a lot of empty space, I had to get creative with entertaining myself. And I developed a lot of skills and habits that have been very lovely things to have carrying with me as an adult. And I think there's a really great essay by my friend Henrik Carlson, who's an essayist, a substacker. Uh, if you haven't, he was, on your stuff, po- he was on your podcast recently. He was on my podcast. He's it's, it's phenomenal. one of my next listens. Sorry. Yeah. I, just heard, he the, some, I heard the name. I had to speak up. Yeah. He has a great sub stack called escaping flatland that I highly recommend. And he wrote an essay on the childhoods of exceptional people where he he's a complete nerd. He just went and read a ton of uh, articles and essays or biographies rather mostly on famous people throughout history and he drew okay. connections between their the patterns of their childhoods and most of them had had significant periods of isolation as kids and that's how they developed their creative propensities or their intellectual passions that led them to actually leave a significant mark on the world um so having space is not always a bad thing i do think we over socialize our kids kind of as a default but it is hard to be you know growing up and not having the the normal american childhood experience uh so that's definitely a dark side um, you're limited by the knowledge and also the values of your parents for sure. Uh, less so as you get older and less so in the era of the internet, but you are limited. Like your, your parents are the conduit through which information is flowing. So if they have a set of biases around what you should be learning, you are limited to that. I would always argue that that is better than being limited by the biases of the system as a general rule of thumb, but there are pros and cons to that. And there definitely are kids who come through homeschooling experiences and they don't, they're not getting a rigorous education by any means. And they come out poorly equipped to navigate the real world. Again, I would argue this is a drawback that is fairly easy to overcome because your intellectual capacity increases as you get grow up. So it is easier to catch up on things in your teenage years than the maybe hours and hours and hours it would have taken when you were small and you were supposed to be learning something. Um, But if you're teaching kids how to learn and you're teaching them the fundamental skills, they can usually catch up on anything that they miss along the way fairly easily when they actually need it. Um, But I think that's another, you know, people argue about that a lot, the pros and cons of that. And that is like a deficit. How much should we regulate homeschoolers? What do we need to make sure they're not missing? Uh, But then when you look at the outcomes of public school kids, they're missing a lot too. So it's not always a across the board, black and white thing. Um, Off the top of my head, those are some of the, the, biggest answers to your question about what people are missing um there are others too but i think some of the, those are some of the the biggest buckets or, sure. or arguments against yeah no good that, i mean that that's that's that there's always there's always those those other sides of it it's it's nice to hear someone i always like to ask people who are advocating one thing with the other side of it see how they articulate it which you obviously do extremely well and and, and um you know, to get some of that perspective. But like you said, just because there's some downsides or or, or, or some challenges there doesn't mean there aren't similar challenges in, in the, I'll call it traditional 
traditional schools schooling from from my understanding of your answer so um paul go ahead i got more questions i go all night but go ahead i'll let you i'll let you i guess i'll let you say something well if we had the technology to be emoji faces right now my head would be exploding like i I, i've got a lot go so hannah since last time i have another computer so every time i have a thought i google something now i mean we we (laughs) don't have like a producer a fact checker but then i take a a computer named jamie yeah absolutely and uh funny thing couple couple quick confessions matt never knows who's coming on basically until the day of the podcast so we always surprise him uh i now i'll say like oh it's someone we've had on before i mean you you Mm -hmm. might be our fourth return or guest if matt even remembers uh and i never know what i'm going to name the podcast till afterwards because i just Mm -hmm. write all this stuff down but I I don't know what to get into next. Uh, you already touched base on obviously when it comes to homeschooling. If if a, if a child doesn't have parents that are supportive, uh, that that's a drawback. Uh, I don't I don't want to go there because that's just a fact of life. I think I'm going to go with this. Uh, have you ever seen the TED Talk by Sir Ken Robinson? Oh yes. It's it's one Hannah. Do you know I've show I show my students that every year. Amazing. And they look at it and they're like, you know, the whole thing with ADHD and yeah, I, I won't revisit it. Matt, that's one of your homework assignments now. Yeah. Uh, who was who it by again? Sir Ken, Sir Robinson. Ken Robinson. And I think it was like almost 20 years ago now. I mean, you talk about a visionary. I, I'm, I, I'm not a public school advocate. I just work in a public school. I mean, it is what it is, <laughs> but I don't know if we can blow up the system short term. I feel like there's so much we can do to make it better. And one thing is, I think, to completely get rid of all national and and state regulation and just bring it down to the local level with school boards and maybe even have the teachers of the school actually be in charge of the learning. I I think that would be a start. I don't know the question I was going to ask now because I. <laughs> I mean, we can riff I, I, on that if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah go go ahead that. and riff on it. But yeah. you've seen Ken Rock. I, I would tell all our vid- viewers to watch that. My students' minds are blown, and I'm always excited because they're like, "That's kind of what you do in class, Mr. Richmond." I'm like, "Yeah, thank you." But the fact that oh oh I know what it was. Schools kill creativity. So. The the hardest, if you take a two-year-old, Matt, and, and Hannah will know this, and you give them a paperclip and you're like, what can this become? They'll think of 200 things it can become. Like, can it be 200 feet? Can it be small? Can it be made of foam? Can it be made of rubber? Because they have imaginations. And then we start coming to school and all us public educators say, well, no, it can't be any of those things. It's just an effing paperclip. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish we could keep that creativity when they're younger, Hannah, because right now I think we really do a poor job, public schools, of of killing creativity. So let's just riff on that. I guess rant's over. Sorry. I, I have I have so many thoughts about this. We're going to try to keep this cohesive. We'll see yeah. where this goes. Yeah. Um, so there's this well, I didn't new... really even ask a question. So <laughs> you, you don't have to. You just have to say creativity in schools that I can talk for two hours. Like it's that's enough prompting. Um, so there's this interesting phenomenon. This is tangentially related. I'm going to draw a connection that I haven't really experimented with that much before. So we'll see. We'll, we'll experiment with this together. We'll see how much this holds water. Okay. So have you ever heard of hyper and hypophantasia? I have not. Okay, this is great. So (laughs) people, if I tell you, imagine a banana, 
Can you picture a banana in your head? Yes. Okay. So some people can't. They can't picture a banana. Okay. They can't visually picture ideas. And but even called- if they but even if they know what a banana is, you're yeah. saying? They, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. They just can't see it. So that's okay. called hypophantasia. Okay. Um, the inability to visualize images in your head. Um, I don't know what percentage of the population has it. I don't remember, but I remember being surprised when I saw. Um, the inverse is called hyperphantasia, which okay. is when I say, imagine a banana. And not only can you picture a banana on your counter, but you picture it in vivid detail. Mm. You're seeing the color splotches on it you're seeing the texture of the stem where it's been ripped off of the bunch you can maybe smell it you can maybe feel the texture of it that's hyper fantasia and a lot of the creative (laughs) innovative people have hyper fantasia um this is just like you know fun fact about how the brain works tangentially related to the point that i'm about to make but i think it's an interesting (laughs) metaphor for where I'm going with this. So this is just like innate. Some people have hyperphantasia. Some people have hypophantasia. Most people are somewhere in the middle. They can picture the banana, but they can't picture it in a ton of detail. Um, Little kids tend to have very vivid imaginations. You, like Paul said, you can hand them whatever. You can hand them a paperclip and they have tons of ideas about what the paperclip can be. They also have tons of ideas about what it can represent. Mommy, I'm bringing you an apple and it's a red paperclip. Or like, mommy, this is the key to my spaceship and we're going to go to the moon and find the fairy that grandma told me about at Christmas who stole my present or like whatever crazy story they're concocting. And you're just like, I don't know where any of this came from, but I'm rolling with it. Like little kids, their brains just work that way. They're hyper creative. And then you send them to school. And you teach them that the world is comprised of right and wrong answers. And they hand you a paperclip and they say, this is the key to our spaceship and we're going to Mars. And you say, no, this is a paperclip. And you test them later on, is this a paperclip or is this, you give them a four point chance question, like four questions to choose from multiple choice. Is this a spaceship key? Is this a clip for a dog collar? is this a paperclip? And you grade them based on whether or not they got the right answer. And you feel very proud of yourself at the end of the year. It's like, look, I helped anchor this kid in reality. I helped them understand how the world works. Like we've educated so many kids this year. We're doing a great job. But the implicit lesson that you're teaching children is that there is a fixed state of the world. This is the way things are. This is the way that they've always been is sort of the implication, even though that's not true and you know it's not true and we all know it's not true. You can't really picture how the world went from what it used to be, this abstract idea that you learn about in history class. Like what? We used to ride around on horses and we didn't have cars? Like that's crazy. Like, But you don't really understand how you got from point A to point B if you can't understand, if you understand everything in your world as being physically anchored and static and non-malleable. If a paperclip can't, you can't imagine that your paperclip is a key to a space rocket. How can you imagine that someday, like the cars that we're in are going to be, we're going to have some other mode of transportation and they're going to be as obsolete as horse and buggy. Like you can't picture it. 
anymore. And so some kids who have incredibly robust imaginations keep them intact and are able to imagine not only what is, but what could be. But most kids are just internalizing that this is how the world is and this is how it's going to be is kind of the implicit assumption. Like, you know, people are innovating and inventing things, but you don't really understand how the process works because you've been told every time you have a crazy idea that you're wrong instead of being encouraged to say, well, this paperclip is just a paperclip, but also like maybe we can unwind it and use it to, I don't know, pick a lock. Maybe we can use it. We can make a little hook out of it and we can use it to fish out something like that's stuck between your the table and the wall that we can't reach. Maybe we can use it for, I don't know, we can like make a little flower out of it and hang it on our charm bracelet. Like, I don't know. There's tons of things you can do with a paperclip. Um, but kids aren't encouraged to think that way. They're encouraged to think about right and wrong answers only. And they're also discouraged from asking questions that are disruptive. So if they want to go down some creative, crazy rabbit hole, they're told that they shouldn't. And that's really detrimental to kids' long-term capacity to be creative thinkers and concoct ideas and innovate and build things and in spite of the delusions of the people who built our public school system in America, who very deliberately constructed a system that discouraged creativity because they needed people who were really good at working in factories and working on farms and driving trucks and being longshoremen and doing all the things, being all the cogs in the wheel and the big system that kept everything running. They thought that they didn't need people who were creative. That was a misconception. We do need a world full of people who are creative. That's what makes the world go round or people who can build things. And yet we have a system that actively discourages that. And so you can see it in real time. You look at little kids and you see how creative they are. And then you see them get older and they stop being creative. They also stop asking questions. They stop being curious. And we're sort of like, oh, look, like Johnny's becoming such a big boy. Like he's so anchored in reality now. He doesn't have crazy ideas anymore. But that's not an accomplishment. That's that's a harm that's being done. Like, yes, you're going to become more grounded in reality. You're not going to think of paperclips, a spaceship right. rocket key forever. Like, that's that's not likely unless, you know, you're writing a science fiction novel or something, in which case, like, that's awesome. You're going to entertain, entertain lots of people. That's a very cool thing to be doing. But, you know, you do need to anchor in reality, but not at the expense of thinking creatively. And we just sort of like switch from one extreme to the other. It's like you're super creative and we're going to make you super grounded in reality instead of allowing the creativity to become maybe more anchored in reality and maybe more practically useful, but still alive and thriving. That's that's 100 percent a benefit of homeschooling. I mean, you can't even you can't even compare creativity when it comes to homeschool. I, not that there's not that in homeschool sometimes and not that there's in public school, but hands down, that's the biggest failure of, and again, I'm, I'm grouping myself as a public educator. I, I think I'm different from most, but for the sake mm -hmm. of the argument, it's, it's the biggest failure of what we do. We, we, we educate kids and it means we, we stop them from thinking hundred hey. percent. Hey, Hannah, I, I want to add something to what, yeah. what you're what, what you were just talking about there from from a, an employer standpoint. I employ a lot of people and, and I have a number of friends and colleagues who are also either employ or hire people. And the number one thing we are all looking for, and I, I talked to, you know, 
people who employ kind of basic skill levels. And, and I, and I talk to people, uh, one person in particular who employs a very high tech level and then everywhere in between. And the number one thing that always comes up when we have these conversations is problem solving. I'm looking for a problem solver. I want mm -hmm. someone who saw everyone. It just comes up every, it's like number one on the list. I ask people, do you look at anyone's GPA? And everyone just goes, I could care less what the GPA is. Can you solve problems? And so you're talking about creativity and another word for that, at least in my world. And, and one of the things I wanted to add in there that, that is just so valuable to, you know, to, to not just, the person's education, but now it's time to go out in that real world, as you put it. And, and you've got to be marketable, let's say to, to an employer, or you're mm -hmm. going to start your own business or whatever you happen to be interested in doing. It's about problem solving all day long. And the people who can solve problems are the people who tend to not always, but tend to kind of shoot to the top. They're the people who get things done, right? They're the people who produce and, and, and can help and that kind of thing. So I just wanted to add that to it in case you're ever having that discussion again from, you know, an employer standpoint, problem solving is number one on my list. And there's many people, just many, many people who lack that. And I never gave it any thought as to why, but I think maybe you're, you're touching on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Capacity to solve problems is so huge. I mean, when I worked at Praxis and we were training, you know, college age kids and even high school dropouts to be ready to go work at a startup. That was one of the things we were looking for too, in the vetting process of who we wanted to work for. And certainly one of the things we were teaching people is like, okay, you're faced with this static scenario where something is wrong. What do you do creatively in order to fix the problem? That's such an infinitely useful skill. Uh, it's one of the most employable. So like, if you can do that, you can find work anywhere because you can anywhere. make up jobs for yourself. You can be like, hey, your website sucks. Let me help you. I can build you a yeah. new one. Um, like you can be super useful to anybody if you have that problem solver mentality. So I think you're you're right on the money there. Yeah, yeah, it's it, you're right about that. If you've got that skill set, you are you are mar you are you are wanted. You are needed somewhere. I don't care what your degree says. I don't care about any of that other stuff. Everyone's looking for problem solvers. All right. I want to shift to college for a minute. I'm sure. Okay. Uh, Don't go. Any next what? question. I'm yeah, no, no, no. That, 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 this is, no, this is what I want to talk about. I mean, <laughs> I guess technically doctors, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so I have honors kids that I, that apply an interview from eight different school districts. They're selected I have to cut kids and that's a whole nother conversation because what do you mean? My kid's 98 average. He's the smartest kid in the world. He didn't get in your class, blah, blah, blah. So I get the most pushback from parents because these are the smart kids. They've gamed the system and I'm trying to encourage them to take a gap year when they graduate high school before they go to college. I do it a little differently because I do a lot of financial literacy. I'm like, stay at home. Make 10, 15 grand, invest it, then decide if you want to go to school. Don't go in debt. And when you're back at your 30-year reunion, you're going to be ahead of every kid there. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, the parents get mad at me. They're like, what do you mean? Johnny's going to college. I'm like, okay, well, send him to community college. And then you can pay that as you go. No, private school X with. So what What I, so I, I try to battle back. I'm rambling a little like I always do as a teacher. There's 168 hours in a work week. 
if you take a full college load, you're taking 15 credit hours. So you go to school 15 hours a week. That's like 9% of the week. You're boarded up in this institution. 9% of the time you're actually learning, if you want to call it that, maybe studying some. What do you do with the rest of your time? You talk about an inefficient use of money. I, and, and I'm into athletics and sports and coach. I get that side of it, but I still don't know if it's worth it. Again, I didn't really ask you a question, but go with it. <laughs> I'm terrible. You, know you don't have. I'm a to. terrible host, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yet I'm still talking. So you're yeah, doing yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I gave a talk about this, probably not as recently as I feel like it was actually. Uh, sometime in the past few months, I gave a talk about this, and I was thinking about how to construct my talk because the prop, I, the prompt I was giving was given was basically just should you go to college? And I was like, no, end talk questions. Um, and I was like, that's not actually some substantive. I'm not going to change minds with that. Um, so I went back to the drawing board and <laughs> I started thinking about it because I, I, I dug into my own, cause I, I had to go through this process of deciding, am I going to go to college? Am I not going to go to college? If I'm not going to college, what am I going to do instead? If I don't go to college and I completely ruin my life, like people are telling me I'm going to, is that a cost I'm willing to incur? Is that a consequence I'm willing to face? Um, and I had to really think about it. And I went back to the version of me that was weighing all of that. And, you know, the, the many, many people that I have spoken to over the years and who are going through the process of making that decision, the hundreds of kids that I've coached who decided not to go, uh, or who had dropped out along the way, or maybe had gone, but still didn't feel like they were properly equipped for life success. And were looking for something else after. And I think you really have to get real about the benefits of college. Like, what are you paying for? What are you paying for? And what are the things that you're afraid you are not going to get if you don't go? And the answers can be broken down pretty categorically. Like, we think of college as a sort of huge, sweeping, all-encompassing thing that you know, it's, it's very much a, a make or break kind of, it, ha it has very high stakes. It's like, if you don't get into a good college, your life is ruined. And it's like, but why? Like, what, am, what am I getting if I go to this really good college that I'm not getting somewhere else? And so all we put all this pressure on kids oh, to score really well on their tests and get really good grades and do really well on their SAT so they can get into whatever school they want so that their life path, they're like unlocked the next. It's like you, you keep chasing the next. Like if I do this thing, then I can still hold on to the potential of a great life. And then if I do this next thing and pass this next test, I can still hold on to the potential of a great life. And if I fail at one of these, my life is ruined. And that's a really unfair thing to put on kids in the first place. I take great offense to the fact that we do this to our children, but we do. So, you know, that that's a separate conversation. That aside, um, you know, what, what are we paying for? And it breaks down pretty neatly into categories. So there's, you're paying for the credentialing. So the piece of paper that says that you graduated mm -hmm. from college and yep. that you are at least as qualified as everyone else who also has this piece of paper from a comparable college. And therefore you are X amount qualified of whatever this piece of paper is worth to be employed. Um, it's really a proxy for your value as an employee. It's a metric that's easy to filter for and so people use it 
as a filtration mechanism to be like, well, if you have this, then you're probably, you have all of these other correlated things that are required to get this, but you could have all of those things without the piece of paper and your capacity to do these things would not, like there's no difference between a person who can write really well and went to college and a person who can write really well and didn't go to college. They both can write really well by definition, just one of them got the piece of paper and the other one did it, but it's harder to filter for the people who don't fit inside the system. So it's a proxy that people, employers use. Um, it society deems you more employable if you have it. Um, you're paying for the education component, but we live in an era of the internet where the best universities in the world have their courses for free online and anyone can take them. You literally can get an MIT level education from for free from your computer on your couch with a bag of chips beside you this <laughs> fall if you wanted to. Like there is literally nothing stopping you. There's no gatekeeping to the information. You can access it anywhere. Um, you're paying for the network, which is significant. That's I think the biggest argument that parents make. Well, I'm not gonna send Billy to community college for two years and then transfer into a private school because I want him to meet the other types of people who are at this private school. They're gonna be lifelong friends, business connections. He can tap into the alumni network to get jobs. Yes, that's real, that's significant. You also can replicate it elsewhere. There are tons of different ways to build community. You look Social like you media, social ahead. media, you could network a million people yeah. on DMs. Not to interrupt, but I- No, 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 that's, that's, I think that's a really important. Okay, so let me, I'm gonna make this about me for just a second and then I'll go back to the generalizations. So I, I am a case study of this. Like I go to dinners regularly. I live in Austin. Now, the last time I was on the show, I was still a nomad. I was in Colorado somewhere. I think yeah. now I'm like based in Austin because I needed a recording studio for podcasting, you know. Um, Austin's great. Lots of cool people here. Uh, I go to dinners every couple of weeks at minimum with uh people who went to grad school at Harvard, uh, people who are former people who graduated from, got bachelors at Oxford, uh, people who are, um, you know, they've, they were professors at Ivy league universities around the country. They, people who've gotten funding from people like Peter Thiel, like people who have the types of connections that you, I was supposed to have had to go to a top tier college in order to meet. Uh, I say all of this not because I think I'm any cooler by association oh, right. or anything. I just say this to illustrate the point that I am having experiences almost on a weekly basis that I was told I could never have if I didn't go to college. And I was like, I'm pretty sure you're wrong. I'm going to try to prove it. Uh, but Twitter <laughs> was great for meeting these types of people. Uh, actually, like the 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 first the first domino pushed over in the chain that that introduced me to a lot of these people was through Twitter. Like I just met cool people and went to meetups and met more cool people. And the, you know, the cascade of events from there introduced me to all kinds of cool people. Um, and so I think that's really important to be real about like a lot of the things that we think college has a monopoly on, maybe it did before the internet era, but it definitely doesn't now. Um, but the socialization and the like networking thing's a really big one, but all of these different categories, and there are a few others too, but all these different categories of benefits, when you stop and you look at them and you say, is college the best way to build a network? 
Is college the best way to get an education? Is college the best way to build the skills that you need to be employable? Is it the most efficient and cost-effective? And I'm actually going to get like the best outcomes pretty much universally across the board. The answer is no. Like maybe if you go somewhere like Harvard, you're going to get a top tier education and top tier networking, but that's not, Harvard doesn't have a monopoly on it. You can meet other people who went to Harvard and become their friends and they can tap you into their network. Like you don't have to have the Harvard credentialing in order to have any of the benefits of having a Harvard degree. And so when you stop and you actually look at it you start to deconstruct it and you don't look at it as this like bundle of goods, you look at it as a set of, or you actually, you do look at it as a bundle of goods. You, you see not just the bundle, but you see the different services that are being provided. You're like, well, actually I can kind of do better across the board in every area on my own. And really the only thing that's left once you've gone through this thought exercise is the social pressure. The fact that people are going to look at you like you have two heads if you don't go to college. If you're a top performing student, you're like, you know, I actually don't think I'm going to go to school. Everybody looks at you like you're throwing your life away. Mm -hmm. And that's a really hard thing to face up to. Like, again, I'm fairly agreeable. I had a really hard time with this when I was deciding not to go to college and my parents were super supportive, which I'm incredibly grateful for. I don't know if I would have had the courage to follow through with it if they weren't, but everybody else around me told me I was insane and that I was going to ruin my life and that I was making just like the greatest mistake ever by not going to college. And that's a tough thing to face. And I think you have to find your friends, uh, which I did. Like I started doing research on not going to college, which is how I found the people at Praxis where I eventually, you know, got super involved and worked for them. They were the only people on the internet at the time talking about being successful without a degree. The conversation was pretty sparse in like 2014, 2015. It's a lot more expansive now. There are a lot more people talking about not going to school, being successful without going to school. All the major publications have published pieces on it. You can, you can find friends and allies fairly easily. I think it's really important to do so. Um, because that makes it so much easier to to take your own path when you can see the case studies of people who've taken it before and they've gone through the valley and they have not died and they come out the other side and they're actually like living a really great life up on a mountaintop with a great view somewhere. You're like, you know, I think it's worth the hike to get there. That looks nice. Um, same with, you know, to go back to why I talk about the education stuff in the first place is because people need the stories to have the courage to take the leap. But if you can find people who can support and understand and acknowledge what you're doing and they don't think you're crazy that really alleviates that last pain point which is the social pressure and from there you know you 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 can do better across any every front objectively without the degree the degree is just easy but it's expensive so is it really easy if you're paying it off for like three decades afterwards i don't know if that argument even holds up And, and it's it's you can never default on student loans like that's that's the other part you can't say i'm gonna bankrupt my student loans i I, i'm gonna stop paying them off i want to get back to we i live 30 minutes from cornell university ithaca and i was telling my kids the other day when you said this about harvard instead of going to cornell when you graduate just take your laptop and go to some of the college coffee shops and hang out in there i bet you in two months Kids won't even know if you go there or not. Wear a Cornell hat or a sweatshirt, whatever. <laughs> Start networking. And you'll probably meet the people you need. Because because like you said, networking can be a big part of attending a university. And, and networking is real. But it doesn't have to be through that. There's no gatekeeper. So uh, I, I was just excited when you said that. I mean, I, I go 
uh, really quickly, I go sit in coffee shops around Austin. And once in a while, somebody will come up to me and they'll be like, are you a student at, U- at University of Tech, UT Austin? I'm like, I guess I have a baby face. Like, no, I'm I'm not. I'm, I'm gainfully employed as an adult. And also, I didn't go to college sidebar. I won't bore you with the details, but like college is a scam. Anyway, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, people people think you're a student. It's, it's real easy to like blend in and network. And there, there are cool stories of people who've done this, too. They've like gone and lived on campus at Harvard or like next to the campus at Harvard. They didn't actually take any class but they like effectively got the experience you yeah there are tons of workarounds to get the experience if you want you you couldn't have done that matt i mean matt's not quite as old as me but you couldn't have done that in the 90s you just couldn't have (laughs) well i get i guess you could have it would have been you could have lived it yeah but it's been a little more difficult some some of those pieces of it but you have a question, Matt? Before I switch gears to another fun topic, you, you switch gears. I got, I got a, I got a couple more, but, but you, you keep rolling on that, and we may, we may get into them and in, in yours. But I do have a couple more. But want to talk about AI, uh, Hannah? We, I've been toying around a lot with Chat GPT. I encourage my students to do it. Uh, it's amazing. Like it, it doesn't stop me from doing anything I want to do as far as experiences and internships and mentorships and creating things. It just saves me a lot of time. I actually, uh, we teach something at New Visions called the fish fish philosophy, you know, from Pike's Fish Market, you know, about being present, playing. You, you should look it up. It's called the fish philosophy. So on chat GPT, I said, hey, give me a lesson plan for the fish philosophy. And in about three seconds, it just gave me this outline that you used to have to pay $50 for all the uh, software and the lesson plans. Uh, Chat GPT, how do you teach a high school softball swing? Three seconds. And I sent it to my daughters tonight who both played college softball. And they're like, that's exactly how you teach the softball swing. So it, it could it could actually, if public education could ever turn towards creativity and flexibility and giving teachers the freedom in the classroom, it could be an incredible tool that saves teachers so much time. But something's telling me, Hannah, we're not, our teacher unions aren't going to look at it this way. Well, look at what's happened with, um, hey, to pre rewind to a year ago, uh, open AI is not openly available yet. People haven't had the mind-blowing experience of talking to chat gpt and going like wait a second what is this insanity and how is this real and where is this going at a rapid pace that i can barely follow um when you look at the in the information technology and the tools that have been developed to aid learning that already exist they're already pretty staggering before you even look at AI. So uh, adaptive apps are a great example of this. Um, We have machine learning tools that allow technology to basically become customized tutors to students to teach them any academic subject. So uh, Duolingo is a great example of this. That's a, you know, publicly available app that a lot of adults use where they've interfaced with a technology. Um, There are tons of tools similar-ish to it in structure that exists to teach kids at any grade level, K through 12, uh, pretty much anything, grammar, reading, writing, mathematics, uh, science, there are learning apps for literally every subject. 
and they function relatively similarly to Duolingo. So if you've used Duolingo before, you know that you pull up the app and you choose a language you want to learn and they do a quick placement test. So if you maybe remember a few things from your Spanish class when you were in high school, they'll be like, okay, you kind of have like rudimentary Spanish down. We'll start at a more intermediate level. Maybe you only get a few words right. And they're like, okay, like we'll kind of start you at the beginning. And then you start going through these short lessons that are only a few minutes long at most. And then you have a quiz at the end and you go through like a series of lessons, like a unit. And then there's a larger quiz at the end. And then you advance on to the next, the next level and so on and so forth. And you go all the way through learning Spanish or whatever language you've chosen. And there's a really interesting technology that's working behind the scenes to make this possible. Uh, there are machine learning algorithms that are allowing basically taking the inputs of every question you get right and every question you get wrong and formulating the next lesson based on your performance. So if there are a handful of words that you keep missing, it's going to structure the next lesson around those handful of words and make sure you're practicing them until you get them right. And if you go through the, a new lesson, and you pick up everything very quickly, is going to skip over some of the practice that it maybe was planning to at like this sort of default base level put you through because you don't need it. So it's going to advance you more quickly to the next level. So basically, it's you're getting the same effect as doing as working with a, a live tutor, a very good live tutor that would have cost your parents hundreds of dollars a month, if not more, for you to have the chance to work with one on one. But you can do all of this with an app for a pretty insignificant subscription cost per month if you're even paying at all. And so all of the different structures that the app is built around are what we call learning science. So that's the science of how, how we learn, which has been a very heavily studied subject for the past 50 or so years. Uh, and there was a guy named Benjamin Bloom who wrote a pretty famous paper called Bloom's Two Sigma Problem in, I think, the early 80s, if my math is, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, which basically the paper said, there the findings of the paper were that if you use very specific learning science strategies with the children that you're teaching, they can learn two times as fast or more. And the strategies were very simple and they seem very intuitive. It was, you know, you learn things, you, you practice things like spaced repetition and forced recall. So you have like a very quick lesson, like maybe 10 minutes, and then you immediately quiz the student afterwards on what they learned. And then based on the results of that quiz, you formulate the next lesson to interspace repetition of the topics that the child struggled with to give them to force their memory, to keep recalling the same topics until it gets anchored in their minds and they score on the test correctly and then they can move on to the next topic but you're still like bringing up at spaced intervals the topics that you covered before to make sure that their memory is consistently being triggered and they have to like actively remember and keep accessible this information as they keep stacking more information on top of it and so basically the findings were that the way we teach our kids in a you know mass system is incredibly inefficient but none of these findings were ever implemented in a classroom because there's no way that a teacher with 30 kids can teach a quick lesson, give everybody a quick quiz, and then immediately go grade the quiz and then give every child a customized follow-up based on where they scored. Like you could start everybody at a base level, but you can't iterate from there. Like there's no way to, to have that many different branches of customization expanding outwards. However, technology and machine learning allow us to systematize this. So you could, in a math class, 
give every child an app that allows them to practice their fractions or their pre-algebra or their geometry or whatever they're learning. And each kid can learn at exactly their own pace. And if they're stuck on something, the app will just keep feeding them practice again and again until they get it. And if a kid is acing everything and geometry comes really naturally to them because they just have like a really great sense of spatial awareness and they're like, you know, the, the, the basic arithmetic required in algebra is just like really intuitive to them. They can blow through their entire algebra or geometry curriculum before the rest of their class is even halfway through if they want to, like there's nothing holding them back. They don't have to be working at the same pace as the rest of the class. And so these learning science based tools could have completely revolutionized how we taught in the classroom. We could have had extraordinary outcomes across the board in the test scores of our kids in any academic subject, because part of the problem too, when you have a classroom with 30 kids is you know, you're teaching to the average. So some kids are ahead, some kids are behind. The kids who are ahead are like constantly being dragged down and slowed down because they have to, you know, stay on pace with the rest of the class. But there also are kids who are struggling, who are consistently pushed ahead before they're ready. And like technically a D is a passing grade. And that can be like seven, 60, 70% like grade. Like you could have gotten 60 to 70% of the questions right, 30 to 40% of the questions wrong and technically still understand whatever subject you're learning. So you have these huge gaps, which mean that actually like you're you're not up to grade level with your understanding of whatever subject you're learning. And that has an abysmal effect on test scores. But we have this technology that could have solved this entire problem, but the schools never adopted it because it didn't fit into the structure of the teacher-centric one person in front of a classroom of 30 kids, bureaucratic structure that the entire system is built around. It would have been super disruptive. And so nobody ever bothered to implement it at scale. So we have this amazing technology. We have it now. There are alternative schools that are using it. They're getting amazing outcomes. Like kids are absolutely crushing it in these alternative schools. Like they're getting fives on like AP algebra in like ninth grade or something like they're, or, no, I'm sorry, AP calculus in like 10th grade. It's amazing. They're, they're doing phenomenally. Um, but the systems, I don't know if they're ever going to adopt it. Like they, they don't care. And so I think the same thing is going to be true with AI where in alternative learning environments is going to start making a huge difference in how teachers teach because they're going to adopt it. And just by nature of the power of the tool is going to change everything. And I think a lot of teachers behind closed doors are going to implement it to make their own lives easier, creating lesson plans and stuff. But I don't think it's going to very quickly, if at all, become a formal part of how the system works. And we're going to see for as, for every teacher that's using it constructively, there's going to be another teacher that's penalizing kids for using it, which I think is uh, a gross offense because if you're teaching your kids to navigate the real world it's a world that now has ai in it so they should be learning how to use it and it's, i don't i don't know how much it actually is cheating if it's helping them with their test prep or whatever i just had a another interview on my podcast a couple weeks ago with a guy named michael ellsberg who uh he's a writer uh he wrote a book called the education of millionaires years ago about like the things that different millionaires that he talked to had done in their own educations to prepare them for life success uh, and he's a writer, so his job is directly threatened by AI. So I had him come on to talk maybe half about his book and half about the AI stuff. And we had a really interesting conversation for those who are interested. Um, but yeah, I think 
kids should be actively learning how to use AI and it should be encouraged because it's a huge tool that they have. Uh, they have a huge advantage in the marketplace actually by knowing how to use it because it's sort of, an, a, it could be part of their native digital language in a way that it's not for people who are more established in the world. But I don't know how much people are going to let them because it goes against the way we've always done things, which we're very bad at letting go of sometimes. Yeah. You know, all technology, I, I don't, I don't even have a cell phone policy. Like the kids can just keep their cell phones on their desks, take a call. I have kids that run businesses and they just get up in class and go. But if I'm not engaging them enough, well, then they will be on their phones. Right. But instead we, it's, and it's going to, I already know it's going to be the same with AI. Like I'm, I'm going to use that as a tool to help the education process, not not set it up as something they can't bring in. I, I, I don't know. I don't understand it. I, I, I want you sometime to zoom with my students, if you would. I love that. I'd like, I'd like, well, I'd like them to hear you and I'd like you to be able to talk to them because it, it's hard for me to explain what I do. I, I have a friend, Matt knows who he is. It keeps hoping I, I, I stretch it so far I get fired because <laughs> You know, right, Matt? Because because he thinks I, think, I should be running around promoting what I do. But I have to admit, Hannah, I'm I got a good gig and I'm comfortable what I do, and I I love being on the ground in the classroom with those thirty kids. But he's like, yeah. dude, you could be spreading this all over, and and I get so torn I, when you tweet, whether it's you or Rebel Educator. I, in the beginning, I used to get mad because I'm like, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. I stopped doing that. I, I know that's, I think that's kind of how we first started DM and, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm like, I, I just, now I just like your tweets because I agree with them. It's, it's nothing personal, but the system needs to change. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a, a final question, Matt, but I want you to, to, to ask anything you need to, because this is a long time for Matt Huffnagel not to be talking. <laughs> no, it's 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 a fascinating conversation and 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 uh, something of of I think great interest to, to many many people. Um, even those those of us who don't you know consider ourselves educators, uh, although I am, um, yes. that's not my really my identity. But I guess Hannah, the one question I wanted to ask you is. What is, what is, what do you, what is victory for you? What do you know? What at the end of the day, are you like, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. This is what success looks like to you. Um, is it changing, blowing up the system and, and reformulating it? Or is it just educating people that there are other options out there? Like, what are you really, you know, at the end of the day, trying to, trying to get done here? Well, I think that's a really good question. And there are different answers depending on the time horizon that we're looking at. Like, mm. I don't see this as a battle that I'm ever going to fully win because there will always be more children. And because there are always more children, those children always need to be defended and advocated for and paths need to be opened up for them that are going to be beneficial to their you know, their, their unique and individual proclivities and interests and, and potential life trajectories. And the world is also rapidly changing at a rate that, you know, for most of human history is completely unprecedented. So I think that we're in the very early stages of an education revolution. I think 
there is a lot coming that's going to, you know, dramatically change how we think about educating our kids, but also what's necessary in the education of our kids. Um, you know, the, the work world as we know it is going to be dramatically different 20 years from now, 10 years from now, even five years from now with the emergence of AI in the same way that the world was dramatically different after the emergence of the internet and, you know, largely unrecognizable to people who didn't have the internet when they were entering the workforce as you know, I, I see the look on your face. You're like, yes, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and, you know, AI is a infinitely more powerful tool than the internet is. The internet's just for information transfer. It's AI is like people refer to it as an entity. It is a thing that can be interacted with and engaged with in the way that the internet cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the world's going to be changing very quickly. And I think there are a lot of fundamental truths about education that will be held true for centuries and they will continue to do so. And I also think there's a lot that we're going to need to rethink. And I think that we've done a pretty bad job historically of innovating in the realm of education. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I don't think like, even if we reach the end of the to-do list of things to be done now, which is, you know, physically impossible, but just for the sake of experimentation, say we did, right? Uh, there'd be a new to-do list very quickly as the world keeps changing. So I think for me, like at the end of the day, I think about it on both a very macro and a very micro level. Like if the work that I do impacts the trajectory of one kid and one kid gets to have an amazing education experience and look back and feel immensely grateful that they were spared from the the inhumanities of the status quo and their potential is unleashed onto the world because they were spared the the destructive and distracting power of the system that's worth it and at the same time every single kid that can be reached is one one child spared and you know you just keep adding again and again ad infinitum as many children as can be saved from the system the better but in terms of the big picture on the macro level like i don't think public schools are going away anytime soon i'm not really advocating to burn it all down um i'm not quite that destructive Uh, i do think the department of education should be dismantled Uh, To go back to Paul's point from earlier, like I do think education needs to come back to a local level, which is part of why I'm so excited about things like micro schools and small community private schools that are very locally centric. That's what education ought to be. It ought to be like, I think there are a lot of things we got right in early America before we tried to just like nationalize everything. Like we can, we have trains that go across the country now, like everything can be a a national affair. It's like, "Mm, I'm not sure that's actually a good thing. Um, Like we have... There were a lot of limitations to the one-room schoolhouse of the traditional one-room schoolhouse, and there's a reason why big schools were in a lot of ways practically better, but we have the internet now, so we can have the benefits of abundance of information that you have from a large institution without all of the inhumanity, the, the lack of personal interaction and customization and attention that comes from a large institution um, in a something like a micro school, which is basically a one-room schoolhouse for the 21st century. Like you, your kids could be learning from the best math teacher in the world on the internet, but they can still have the personalized attention of like someone from their community who's designing their curriculum around the needs of the individual children who are present. Um, but I think I do want to see 
a mass exodus from the public school system. And I think that is a very attainable goal. I think that people are really hungry for change. And I think that if people start leaving, the system is going to have a moment of reckoning because right now they have this false enforced monopoly. And if they no longer have a monopoly, they're going to have to play in the free market. And by playing in the free market, they're going to have to be competitive. And by being competitive, they're going to have to offer something that is better than the other alternatives that are being built. And in a lot of cases, just being quote unquote free. And by free, I mean, you're forced to pay for it. So like, you know, it's already, it's an expense you're budgeting for whether you want to or not through your property taxes. Um, a value proposition that's better than just that. Um, so there are a lot of different outcomes that I'm trying to work towards. There's, you know, empowering parents to pull their kids from the system, empowering innovators to build something better, sharing information and kind of becoming like a central node of resources for people who are trying to be a part of the conversation. Like we kind of have to figure out together what does education for the 21st century even look like? It's a really different world than it was when our education system was conceived and we kind of have to go back to the drawing board on a lot of things and a big conversation needs to happen. And, you know, the more I can help facilitate that, the better. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I just, I just care about the kids and the individual kids. And then, you know, all of the side effects that come from not paying attention to the kids, which is a society that's, you know, has major problems from miseducated population, but really I care about the kids. Got it. Got it. No, that, thank you. I, I'm, wanted to get down to that and see what you, where you really were with, with that type of thing. And, and I think, uh, um, it's a conversation that, 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 and I don't think it's cause I'm more sensitive to it. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I don't, but I don't think it's cause I'm sensitive to it right now, but it, it's a conversation that I hear be, being discussed infinitely more than I, I did five years ago, let alone yes. 10, let alone 20. So something's happening at least from just just from a, a guy on the street you know um something seems to be happening so paul go ahead no you you pretty much asked what i was going to ask and and hannah answered it about you know will the public schools go away uh one thing that always struck me as we wrap this up uh inmates prisoners actually were free before they became institutionalized i think we've talked about this before Someone goes to school, then they go to college, and then they become a teacher, and they've been institutionalized their whole life. They don't know any other way to teach, and that's what worries me. I I spent three years from 22 to 25 before I went back to teach, and all my friends thought I was crazy. But those three years were very valuable in the foundation of how I've decided to do everything. And I think until that happens we're just going to get more of the same stuff being pushed and it's not a lack of teachers not wanting to try or help the kids they just don't know any better and hopefully technology will change that but let's just end with your thoughts on that no i think you're absolutely right education is a strange thing that's very divorced from the real world across all arenas it's divorced from the real world both with you know parents or teachers rather never having worked anywhere besides the education system, but it's also divorced from the real world. Like kids go to school all day and they're not inter interfacing with the real world at all. And somehow they're supposed to go to this place that has nothing to do with the real world in order to learn how to be successful in the real world. Like it's, it's, it's really weird when you think about it. And I think, you know, there are, there are a lot of questions that need to be asked around that. Like, is it actually, does it actually behoove us to have this like strange age segregation where like kids 
rarely interact with the elderly, which, you know, historically the elders were the wise ones. And now it's like, we just have like old people, you know, like it's not, we don't, we don't have this, like this cohesive ecosystem where the different parts and generations are feeding back into each other. And like, did we lose that on purpose? Like, is that actually a good thing to not have integrated into a child's upbringing? Uh, Should kids really be segregated from people, from kids of other ages? And should they really be segregated from the real world? Like we just sort of like put them away for the day. It's like out of sight, out of mind. The rest of us go about our day. If we see a kid out in the wild, like a stray one that got away, the cashier at the grocery store is like, why aren't you in school? And it's like, well, I'm homeschooled. And they're like, well, why are you doing that? You're supposed to be in school. Um, It's very, it's very strange that we have this, like this, these separations that we've put onto the world to a level that we think it's weird when the separations don't exist anymore. Like it's all very odd. And so I think there are a lot of questions that need to be asked around that, that, you know, parents have more power than they think to deviate from the norms. It's really not that hard. You just have to file some paperwork in most States and your kids are relinquished begrudgingly back to your care and you can do pretty much whatever you want with them. And if you want them to like, hang out in your kitchen for a week and learn all the, the art of candy making. Cause that's what everybody thinks is fun. Like you can do that and you can call it science. Like it's food science. My parent, my mom did that once. It's like, that's real school. I still remember, like I learned a lot about how sugar crystallizes at different temperatures. It was really fascinating. Um, like you can, you can have your kids start a business. You can have them sit, you know, on at your kitchen table and like learn how to make bread and learn math at the same time. And like, whatever you want to do to educate them. And it's really awesome. And you are, if your intuition is that something is broken about the very sterile institutional system, you're probably right. And you should trust that even if the world thinks you're crazy, because there are a lot of people out there who don't think you're crazy, like Paul and Matt and myself, and you're in good company. You can come be crazy with us and you're going to do great. If you're already thinking these questions about how to educate your kids, you're already way ahead of the curve and the chances are very high that you're going to do an awesome job. Anna. The million dollar question is what will happen to Matt's daughter? <laughs> oh, well, there, there are two options. Yeah. There really are only two potentialities here. Uh, one, she's going to get an amazing bespoke homeschooling experience without any, any intervention because the seeds have already been planted and, and Matt, Matt knows that's the way. Uh, or two, uh, she's going to go to public school and I'm going to hear about it and I'm going to do some Googling and I'm going to find an address and I'm going to come knocking and then she'll be homeschooled. Like two, two options. Absolutely. Wow. That, that's what I thought you'd say. Hannah, I, I, I promise I'm really nice. It'll, I'll just come, I'll, I'll bring cookies. I'll be like, we should have a little chat. Like, I think, I think, I think better can be done here. Matt, be Matt will really be telling nice us. Matt will be showing his daughter your picture. If this lady ever knocks on our door, do not answer it. <laughs> She's a rebel. Don't talk not to a her. Chance. I would never. I would never do that. I would never. No, say I that. know. Hey, uh, so our viewers, quick. You talked in our first episode about all the different types of alternative education, mm-hmm. and we didn't go in there tonight. But I, 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 I would strongly recommend our viewers go check that episode out because that that was a lot of fun but we already talked about that not that we couldn't have talked about it in a different way but i thought tonight's episode went real well and uh tell uh, our viewers where we can find you i mean where can we find you on social media i guess it's not not where can we find you in austin <laughs> austin <laughs> <laughs> All right, pull out your pens and papers. I'm going to give you an address. I'm only going to give it once. So no. Um, so I'm going to give you Matt's address, actually. 
so <laughs> um if you're on twitter uh all roads lead to rome and all nodes and hannah's network lead back to hannah's twitter uh so you can find me at hannah frankman on twitter uh that's a great place to get linked out to all of my other stuff people listening to this are podcast listeners i don't know what platform most of your listeners are on here where people are listening to this if you're on spotify i'm on spotify the hannah frankman podcast um if you listen to podcasts on youtube i also have a youtube channel now with my podcast again it's just the hannah frankman podcast you can find it Uh, there aren't a lot of hannah frankmans out there i'm going to be the first thing that comes up uh, there's an Instagram for the podcast. You can find that as well. So whatever platform you like, you can you can find me unless it's TikTok. I'm sort of a conscientious objector for now. I don't know how long that will last, but I'm trying to be principled, you know. Uh, and then obviously Rebel Educator on Twitter. We've got a few followers at this point. Uh, you can come check out what we're doing. And we've got a website full of content, including articles on the different education modalities that Paul mentioned. So you can check that out as well. Uh, I think that covers all the bases uh that and if, if i missed something it'll be linked from the ones that i listed off so that's that's where i'd send you from here well thank you and i'm so glad i stopped taking your tweets personally and i i am <laughs> really that. sorry you did i didn't mean to well, be offensive no 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 it's a me problem uh, no you know and there's probably other i know but i'm still gonna there. apologize i'm kidding <laughs> yeah, no there's a lot of educators out there like that but big picture you you're just 100 percent right and and so I, I I try not to always comment and be like, well, you know, there's people because that's not the point. I mean, the point is you're a disruptor and, and you're making change. And well, and I actually, I'm- to be fair, I actually liked your comments because they made they made a like you were getting the point across, which is like there are some of us who are rebelling. Okay. Come join us. And I think that's also a really important point to make. Like when I'm speaking in generalizations, I know I'm not including everybody. It's right, just right. like sweepingly on average, this is happening, you know. Well, it's it's very true, and may, maybe I'll comment once in a while then. But uh, <laughs> you should. Hey, this this was fabulous. Uh, someday I, I'm gonna wait. It might be second semester in January, February, when my kids we don't we don't get out of the classroom a lot. I I can't even wait to tell you what we're doing in the classroom right now. It, it's some of it I don't even know what's gonna happen yet. I just leave a blank slate and it happens. But the the stuff in three weeks it. Anyways, I can't wait because I think you're going to enjoy that and, and we'll we'll hook up with that in a couple months. Uh, and yeah, I can't wait to have you back when you're like at a million followers. And and I mean, maybe just... don't wait that long. That might take a little while. We're working <laughs> on it, but you know. Okay, okay, okay. Fair well, enough. maybe six months. Maybe you'll be a six month. Anyways, thanks so much. I, I know we, we went a little over what we normally do tonight, but I thought we had a lot of fun doing it, so. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I had a great time last time you had me on and I had a great time this this time. And I am super excited to meet your students later this year. That'll be great. Hannah, keep up the good work. You, it, it's it's incredible. Trying to. And <laughs> congratulations on the daughter, Matt. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. Super think he's naming her. I think he's naming her Paula, right? No, no. I thought you were going to say Hannah, man. I got <laughs> yeah. so excited there for a second. <laughs> Sorry, we we have a we have a different name, but 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 those are both beautiful names. So, so yeah, don't, yeah, don't I don't know about Paula, sense. but <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hey, thanks, Anna. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, bye.